Welcome back, lords, ladies, and lovelies, to Black Girl Tea Party. My name is Yasmeen Hill. And I'm Aaliyah Dorsey. First things first, let's get right into the brew. Yasmeen, what's brewing for you this week? For my brew this week, I wanted to talk about the impending news magazine on ABC News that is going to be focused specifically on, quote, the black experience. So ABC News says it will air Soul of a Nation starting next month, but the time slots um, or date hasn't been released yet. But the primetime network news magazine is supposed to be focused on black life in America. Um, So Soul of a Nation, the network has committed to six episodes so far, um, and each one will have a, a theme which is centered on blackness, so either spirituality, activism in sports, uh, or even the death of George Floyd. So, um, I think the show is going to feature journalist Jamil Hill and, uh, Marci Martin of Blackish, so we've got some exciting, exciting appearances going on there, um. And aside from that, there's going to be some cameos from Carmelo Anthony, Saweetie, and some other really cool black people. So, um, on the one hand, I think this is really good, but even this article points out how the network saw a spike in black viewership following a special that they aired on George Floyd's death. So, and I guess it's important to note that ABC did specials on Juneteenth and um, some of the disparities um, regarding the pandemic in terms of race and class. So this wouldn't be the first time they're kind of covering um, some content that thinks about race critically, that thinks about blackness critically. Uh, It's just a little odd, I think, to frame it that way. Um, Yeah, I think it's a little weird to do this sort of like performative representation thing just in terms of like keeping black viewership up because um and it hasn't aired yet so I think it'll be interesting to watch but if it's just like we're gonna talk about blackness so that black people watch ABC then I don't really know how to feel about that but if they are actually going to facilitate like critical or thoughtful conversation on the nuances of blackness in America, then I would be excited to hear about that. What's brewing for you this week, Aaliyah? Oh my gosh. So I have two brews this week. One of them is, um, one of them, honestly, I'm, I'm very furious about it. I saw it and I was really angry. (laughs) And the other one, um, the other one, a little controversial. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is a uh, country music star, Morgan Wallen. Um, he was caught on video using the N word. Um, so according, I watched the video that was released by TMZ and it seems like he was coming home from a like late night out with friends and he was like yelling and the cars were honking. And so his neighbors came out and recorded to see what was going on and He's, like, saying racial slurs really loudly. Um, and so that was that happened. And so his label dropped him. And 
over a hundred radio stations stopped playing his music um, as a result of this video being released. Um, but also, also at the same time, sales for his music have gone up because his fans are continuing to support him and a lot of other stars who have either like said nothing about it or have like condemned his actions are also like you know make are like liking comments that maybe like he doesn't deserve what's happening to him um or he doesn't deserve to be like dropped from his album or not from his album from his record label um and it's just you know and he's apologized via via youtube i believe um and also like via instagram and it's just and people are calling it uh cancel culture because he's been dropped from his label and i don't know like first of all like i just do not think that um this is a one-off incident because if you watch the video like he was very clearly drunk in that video and i feel like in order to say the n-word while you're drunk you have to have said it while you were like sober for it to be like in your vocabulary in that way um and also also it's really hurtful for a lot of like black country stars who have like a hard time getting into that format as is and yet like i think like white country stars like um morgan can say say and do things like this and be just kind of like patted on the wrist for it you know i think he is like receiving serious consequences by being dropped from his label but i think like it's really like the fan response that's upsetting to me is that like fans of his music are willing to like excuse the blatant racism that uh he's perpetuating by saying the n-word and that's just real that's real upsetting you know especially because like he has gotten in trouble before for um you know doing some not so great behavior uh he was supposed to perform on saturday night live in october but then he was seen in video like without a mask kissing random women and obviously putting himself and other people at risk and so then saturday night live cut him from the show and then like gave him a second chance later so i just i don't know i just feel like things i feel like a lot of like you know like white celebrities get to get patted on the wrist for doing kind of really vile things and that the fact that this man's music sales have gone up in the same breath of him like saying the n-word it's just kind of saying a lot it's saying a lot about you know what we allow him to accept but also about like what people can get away with so yeah um the other thing on um on my brew is as we all know um tessica brown has been um making waves on the internet and not for really anything great um so this is a louisiana woman who she was laying down her hair and instead of using like hair glue she used gorilla glue which is a like adhesive usually used in like arts and crafts and like heavy duty gluing stuff and then her hair became essentially like a helmet uh because like i think gorilla glue like activates with like water and she was like so like every time that she tried to like wash it out of her hair she ended up just like making it harder and so she has this video on the internet of her talking about how she 
has had her hair in the same hairstyle for a month because she has been unable to get the grill glue out of her hair and honestly results on the internet were super mixed about whether or not people felt bad about this or a lot of people were upset because she is a grown woman who used gorilla glue in her hair you know um when it's when people people view this as like being clearly labeled as for like heavy duty adhesives and on the label it says that it should never be used in contact with um skin and it's just um it's a lot currently i know she has a gofundme um available for her like to you know get her hair taken care of but also she does i've uh there are rumors that she has planned on suing the company that makes gorilla glue thing that maybe their label should have been more explicit about that it's not to be used for hair um and i don't really know i have i also have like mixed feelings about this because at first i thought maybe she confused gorilla glue for like gorilla snot which like is a hair product that's meant for hair and also it's like black people use a lot of things that like are not meant as cosmetics as cosmetics all the time like i.e like drag queens who like glue their eyebrows with like elmer's glue or like people I think use Sharpie as like eyeliner sometimes. There's, I remember on the internet, there's a big thing about people using like crayons as like lipstick. So like things kind of, sometimes people have used like kind of toxic things as makeup, but I think like Elmer's glue is not toxic because it's for children. I don't think crayons are super toxic. I'm not really sure. And you know, Sharpie's kind of towing the line a little bit. So I don't know. I feel like maybe it's because I also know that Gorilla Glue is not meant to be used on your body. And so I just don't understand what was happening here. But, um, internet, the internet feels very differently about it. And, um, you know, like she is okay. Um, according to CNN, uh, it was a four hour surgery that took to like degluify her head, you know? And so, like, um, a surgeon has, like, you know, did the procedure uh, apparently he used medical grade adhesive remover aloe vera olive oil and even acetone to remove um the product from her hair and so like she's you know fine i don't really know about her scalp you know um i she undoubtedly probably lost a lot of hair in the during the surgery and you know i think she'll be fine probably long term because you know like wigs are a thing so i think that it'll be fine um but yeah i don't know i just kind of feel i'm i'm thinking my my first thing when i thought when i thought the story was worry i was just really i was confused and i was worried about her hair and so i hope that like going forward you know maybe she continues to like look at labels more closely when she's doing her hair and maybe she just like really goes forward and like thinks about it because i think she genuinely put the video on the internet just to be like hey i really like effed up in this really big way and i don't want anyone to f up in the way that i have because i'll start i'll start at some like discourse about maybe like how you know we hold women to very high standards to the fact that like she couldn't wait to go back to the store to get more glue for her hair that she just resorted to using gorilla glue because she thought it would because she thought it would work, you know, um, and who to say anything about that at the current moment, but, you know, big ups to Tessica Brown, hopefully, you know, um, her scalp turns out all right, 
in the end and that she has no other long-term effects you know that's the most that we can hope from this story and with that it's time for tea all right as you know it's still black history month and we will continue to celebrate by highlighting underrecognized and wildly prolific revolutionary black folks <laughs> so i'm very excited this week to chronicle the life and legacy of florence kennedy She's often described as flamboyant, and more specifically, the biggest, loudest, and rudest mouth on the battleground. So before I get too deep into her bio, I just wanted to say that she's known for being a lawyer, an outspoken social activist, and a pioneer of second wave feminism. She was only the second black woman to graduate from Columbia Law, which all of these are just accomplishments in and of themselves. Aaliyah, do you have any thoughts so far? Did you know anything about her or had you heard her name before today? Honestly, I I remember when you brought it up to me when we were like brainstorming people we wanted to do for this series and I could not remember her name, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I googled a little bit, you know, and she seems pretty rad. I didn't want to spoil it too much for, for my for my lesson today um, in black history, but I'm really excited, you know. There isn't really a lot of, um, I don't feel like I... I know a whole lot of like black feminist icons to look up to, so I'm excited to learn. I don't, th- but I, d- I don't think I know a whole lot about her um, at all, really. Yeah, no, and then that's totally that's totally fine. That's why we're doing this series. But I'll just jump right into it today. So Florence or Flo Kennedy, I'll probably refer to as Flo throughout the episode, was born on February 11th, 1916, in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so, like, small aside, we are recording this on her actual birthday. So, happy birthday to my good sis. Uh, hopefully yes. She, uh, you know, high-fiving with the rest of the deities, I guess. Uh, but she's the second of five children. And her father was a Pullman porter and a waiter. So, eventually, he went to own his own business. So... She comes from really hardworking parents, and it's said that she's inherited her tenacity and determination from her father, who, after buying a home in a predominantly white neighborhood, moved off the KKK. And she speaks about this incident very candidly in her autobiography, Call Me Flo. Uh, she writes, They stood on the sidewalk, and they said they wanted to see our daddy. When daddy came out, they told him, You have to get out of here by tomorrow. He brought his gun. He brought his gun out with him and said, now the first foot that hits this step belongs to the you. And then after that, you can decide who's going to shoot me. They went away and never came back. And so I think that like speaks a little bit to how she was raised. And I think we can definitely see her father's influence in her attitude and just the way that her activism in her later years. And so she lived a very stable childhood. It was pretty well-educated. Uh, her mom went to what she normal school, which in this context means white, like, um, and it's notable that her mom was light-skinned or uh, at least close to white passing, so she was able to go to one of those schools and get um, a normal, quote, normal education. Uh, so she and her sisters were taught that teachers and other authority figures needed to earn respect, which is pretty, um, even like a radical position at this point in time. I know a lot of um, people in this generation were raised to, like, just listen to authority without any like question whether they were right or wrong. And so in her autobiography, she says, 
quote, we were taught very early in the game that we didn't have to respect the teachers, and if they threatened to hit us, we could act as if they weren't anybody we had to pay attention to. And I think that, like I said, I think that's a pretty radical position, especially to teach um, black children uh, on how to deal with authority. And I also think this influences just like her, because when you frame things like that uh, from a young period, I think that like sort of frames how you look at authority figures just in general and how they play into like social systems. So Aliyah, at this point, have any um, thoughts or feelings? Um, I think we're getting like a good look into how her childhood just shapes her activism. So do you have any just like short um, interjections? Yeah, no, like her family sounds like like her, her dad. But she still sounds her dad sounds like a badass. To be honest, like that takes a lot to do. But also, like I do, I also agree. Like I love that uh, she was taught from a young age to like you know, if you like to value your own personhood in like the face of like authority. I think that's like really really important to like instill, especially in like small children. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And so after high school, uh, Flo delivered going to college and worked a variety of odd jobs. And this was around like the 1930s when a local Coke factory refused to hire a black truck driver. And so Flo was not a truck driver, but she organized a boycott. And so if you could imagine, you know, you're living your life, you're working your jobs, and then you're hearing about like certain injustices that are happening to maybe... Uh, some folks that work with your dad, older folks around you, and that influenced her to start a boycott. So maybe it didn't have like a direct effect on her, but this is her formal introduction into social activism. And so after her mother passed away in 1942, she and her sister Grace moved to New York. And in 1944, that's when she started at Columbia University. She applied to Columbia Law in 1948, and she was initially denied. And when she confronted the dean, because she assumed that she had been denied because she was black, he told her very explicitly because of her gender. So this is like what we're talking about, how the intersection of your blackness and your womanhood could literally disenfranchise you even further. And so eventually she was admitted. And that invited a lot of hatred and violence in her life. And so at this point, I wanted to insert a clip from The Root in which actress Lorraine Toussaint speaks to Flo's legacy leading up to uh, her adulthood activism. And so it's uh, important to know that Toussaint plays Flo in The Gloria. So we'll insert that here. I'm Lorraine Toussaint, actress, writer, producer, mother. Flo Kennedy was um, one of the pillars of the, of the feminist, the second wave of the feminist movement. She talked herself into law school, into Columbia. She applied and was denied, and was clearly denied because she was a woman and she was black. She was expected to just tuck her tail and, and walk away with that. She then took a meeting with uh, the president of the university and said, I am going to sue you. And literally within a day, they reversed the decision and sent her a letter saying, welcome to law school. She just would not take no for an answer. 
But it also meant that she paid the price for that. She was put in jail and beaten so badly. So she, for the rest of her life, has a fused spine as a result of that. That was the birth of Flo becoming an activist. She became um, an advocate for women. She became an advocate for civil rights. She was a member of the Black Panther Party. As we moved into the late 60s and 70s, she was very clear that racism and sexism were intertwined and you couldn't remove one without the other. And so like, I definitely, like we heard in that video, uh, Flo was often seen with like her bright pink cowboy hat and uh, this golden whistle that really becomes like staples of her her presence and, and her demeanor. And we've talked on this show specifically about how fashion and attitude are uh, inherently political, specifically when you're talking about black women. Aliyah, do you, how do you think her, her presence in, affected her activism, either in dress or attitude? I think it's like, I think it's really, it's been really hard for like me as a black woman to like feel like I can like take up space. And I think especially when you're like an activist and you're making sure to like make yourself seen and like make yourself like large enough to take up space, it's always like such a big deal to me, you know? Um, And so I think that definitely has like an effect on her activism because then it's like, you know, you're not going to be you're not going to be erased and you're not going to, you're going to make sure that no one can do that. Um, you know, and I think that's like really beautiful to me. Um, especially like when you, when you kind of bring like gender into that as well, you know, um, I think it's really easy for like people to make women feel small. Um, especially when we have like very big political opinions, um, and I very much appreciate that she's very much not going to let anyone make her feel small or unheard of, like, in these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally right. And I think we can see, like, the remnants of that, even if we're looking at, like, specific Black women in pop culture today. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the Meg. I'm thinking of the, <laughs> the Flo Millies. You know what I'm saying? Like is in every like part of their essence they are embodying this i want to say radical because it's not that radical i'm just like this it's radical in that like it is abnormal for black women to openly like love their bodies right yeah but it also kind of speaks to how like especially women in, in this time uh it was seen as beautiful beautiful to be like quiet or dainty and you know soft-spoken and so like at this point in time it's like she's still hearing like reiterations of that idea that like you have to be quiet or seen and not heard type stuff and I feel like just the decision to do like the exact opposite is quite powerful but like it, it definitely wasn't met with acceptance right like she like i said at the top of the show she was regarded as, regarded as like one of the rudest people in the game and that i feel like that's just like that makes you question it's like is she rude because she's actually rude or like is she rude because she's advocating for like her own like bodily autonomy or like liberation right right because people have a tendency to be like anybody who's going to speak loudly and confidently is like being rude or being too 
like aggressive you know i'm looking at pictures of her right now and she seems like such a sweetie like her smile is so big and she takes up such she seems like she takes up so much space in a way that you have to notice her and i think that like that definitely is like you know an impression that someone is making of her i i just get like the whole like you're sassy like oh yeah you're sassy aren't you and it's like no i'm an actual agent of chaos. I'm a political activist. <laughs> but Flo took on controversial legal clientele, including Ape Rap Brown and several Black Panther Party members. And if you remember, she was also a member of the Black Panthers. Uh, but the, par- uh, the party members that she represented were accused of conspiring to blow up a few in New York City stores. They were acquitted in 1971. And I think at the time, this was the longest um, New York City case. And so she was also very vocal about the discrimination in the recording industry. She represented Billie Holiday and Charles Parker when they sued their respective studios for royalties. And, you know, I when I was going through her story, I was seeing hints and bits of stuff that we've already talked about on this show. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like we've talked about... Um, fashion which i touched on a little bit earlier and like now we're talking about how um representation in music which is also something that we've talked about on the show so like it just feels very i it's very interesting to see like how the uh, the parallels in her life and her career are sort of matching up with the the studies that we're still doing today so it's like i really view it as like uh, her laying the groundwork for a lot of that work um, but unfortunately, the racism that she experienced in the legal sphere influenced her to take that, uh, take her spark other arenas. She was very concerned with how she could make social change in other ways. And so uh, Lorraine Toussaint sort of shifted into how uh, Flo was really the pillar of second wave feminine of the second wave of the feminist movement. And we've talked explicitly about how the feminist movement um, was specifically anti-black because black women's issues weren't being highlighted. I know that specific uh, certain suffragettes wouldn't like recognize black women as being women. Therefore, like the intersection of their oppression was never really highlighted. Um, even before that, I know that when Sojourner Truth was talking at feminist conventions about um, well, I guess it wasn't called a convention at the time, but when Sojourner Truth was talking about emancipation, they were, you know, silencing her. And so this is like uh, an extension of that. And so when those issues weren't being highlighted, uh, you know, Flo was still committed to women's liberation and was aware of how to strategically organize against the same, quote, uh, enemy. She says in Ebony Magazine, it's obvious that many black women are not prepared to work with whites in liberation because of the divide and conquer techniques always employed by the exploitative society. However, in many towns, there are movements where black and white women are working one-on-one in the movement. It's the same gig wherever you are, wherever you're fighting, whether you're fighting for women's lib or just black lib, you're fighting the same enemies. And I think that's an interesting perspective. I just don't know if that's always um, how it's viewed in practice. No, no, it's yeah. not viewed in practice like that. And I don't think, um, which I don't think that's how she meant it, but I feel like people might take that sentiment and view it as like a sort of blanket solution. And um, 
that's not really how we have to look at these issues. We have to like center the most markets in order to like get the liberation that we're talking about. But nonetheless, in fighting for women's rights, Kennedy well, it's also important to note it, to note that Kennedy was like definitely ahead of her time in terms of like um uh, in terms of uh, sort of trying to like liberate sex workers, she was definitely she wanted to like legalize sex work, and um, her thoughts on abortion as well were regarded as being ahead of her time. So I think she was just more concerned with like getting to the end. So in fighting for women's rights, Kennedy helped found the Women's Political Caucus and the National Black Feminist Organization. She was an original member and. Uh, joined a protest to, to the 1960s American pageant in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So she also founded the National Feminist Party, which nominated Representative Shirley Chisholm, the first African woman, African American elected to Congress for president. So if you know anything about Shirley Chisholm, she was the first black woman to run for president, and um, Kennedy founded the party that nominated her. Yes. <laughs> Queen shit. He <laughs> protested the shortage of uh, female bathrooms at Harvard University by leading a mass urination on campus grounds. And so, uh, my good sis Flo Kennedy is no stranger to provocation. She's no stranger to uh, activism by any means possible. By any means possible. And if there's anything that we're learning is that you know she's going to get your attention and she's going to get it. <laughs> or she was going to get your attention and uh, going to try to provoke a response. And so in terms of um, abortion rights, Kennedy organized feminist lawyers in the late 1960s to challenge um, constitutional anti-abortion laws. And so she collaborated on briefs and cross-examined witnesses for pretrial hearings. And so the laws were eventually overturned in 1971. She co-authored a book on the class action suit called Abortion Rap, which we can link down below. And technically, this is one of the first books on abortion. So we're seeing how um, this woman is literally like pioneering systems or at least social systems that are still um, working to this day. (laughs) Elise, do you have any more interjections? I just wrote that, but... Yeah, like... I just think I love her, her like particular take on activism because like she is hitting it at the source. Like (laughs) homegirl is not beating around the bush. I just think about the power of like a mass urination (laughs) on a college campus and just like the absolute gall that that has is astounding to me. Um, And also like, you know, like I'm just really... I'm just really kind of in awe of like the power that this woman has and like the ability where she is not like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like when I, when like progressive things happen in the world, I'm willing to like accept crumbs when really I should be getting like the whole damn meal. And I feel like this is a woman who is like, you know, reminds me that like, maybe I should be asking for more. Maybe I should be doing more because I deserve that. Um, and that's what I'm getting like from this story, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And it's going back to like how she was regarded at the time as being like, 
big and loud and all of these things. You know, she was she was a a tall, even just like a tall figure, right? Um, and I think that all of that speaks to how she views herself, how she views what she and other people that look like her deserve, right? Yeah. No, I just I love that. Yeah, and so it's like she's dominating in this legal sphere, but also like on social and political fronts. And I think that tactic of like employing political rage is still relevant. And I talk about that on the show, but I definitely still think it's relevant. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but moving on a little bit. Flo continued her activism in her later years and lectured at colleges and universities. And unfortunately, due to back pain and her overall health, she left that circuit. She died uh, in her apartment on December 22nd, 2000, at the age of 84. So, but, you know, what a life to have lived, am I right? Right. Definitely. Like, taking no prisoners. And I love that. Yeah. So this was just like a, you know, chronicling of how my good sis was contributing to the life that we know now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like I... I don't know it's always I always have like a really like complicated relationship with like feminist icons because a lot of the ones we we end up revering in history are often like white feminists who were not fighting for my rights and now I gotta like and I think we we end up like I, I end up thinking immediately of like Sojourner Truth and like Angela Davis and then like that is it you know but I'm gonna have to like add her to like my thoughts about like what I could be asking for as a feminist and I'm gonna you know take this lesson that I think I've learned from hearing this story of like making sure that like I I take up space when it's needed to take up space which has always been like a huge like insecurity of mine Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna think about her next time that I think that maybe I'm um I'm doing too much or I'm being too loud and remembering that that's like probably not true you know and I probably could be taking up more space so it's probably not true also probably impossible given like how justified your feelings on whatever it is you would be talking yeah and then i also think a little bit about why it took us so long to learn about this person because i'm with you like i my my thoughts initially go to the angela davis's the sojourner truths and like not to take anything away from their legacy because obviously they were very calculated, very precise with like what they wanted and what they contributed to the movement. But I think we also have to think about why specifically Flo was like left out of that education. And it's probably because of this like political race that she represents. Hmm. But in recognizing uh, Kennedy's tireless advocacy after her death, Uh, A justice that she was very close to, Emily Goodman of New York State, of the New York State Supreme Court said, quote, she showed a whole generation of us the right way to live our lives. Her point was that you have to fight on all fronts all the time. As someone who's adamant about not wasting her life, Kennedy had said, sweetie, if you're not living on the edge, then you're not taking up space. And take up space, we shall. I love that so much. I'm putting that on my inspiration mirror in my room. (laughs) 
Yes. You know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta keep it going the best way we can. I'm putting that on one of my sticky notes in my beautiful little font. It's happening. Well, I mean, Black History Month, so continue to act accordingly. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And that's a wrap for episode this week. Yasmin, where can our listeners find you? Uh, Our listeners can find me. I'm at Yasmin underscore S-A on Instagram. Aaliyah, where can our listeners find you? I am at It's Aaliyah Dorsey on Twitter and Instagram. As always, please follow us at Black Girl Tea Party on Instagram and search Black Girl Tea Party on Facebook and at Black Girl Tea Time on Twitter to stay up to date with our episodes and with updates from us. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. You can also send us an email um, at blackgirlteaparty at gmail.com. You can send us your questions, ask for advice, t- tell us what you love the show, or you can like wish us a happy Black History Month and tell us about some Black icons in your life. We would love to hear from you. As always, friends, uh, love often and with all your heart. Thanks for joining us this week. All of our sources are listed in the caption. Please love each other and yourselves, and we'll see you next week. And you holler, you sing, and you blow your whistles, and you shake your shit, and you do your damn thing. Don't worry about nobody. If you can't sing, don't worry. It's the people's chorus. It ain't the, the rave, whatever the fuck it is. Dig it! Oh, All right, let's go. Go to the sand. Go on